which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. So as Jeff was saying, uh, welcome to Cornerstone. You'll probably see we, we may do things a little differently here. Um, so uh, we welcome you and hope this is a, an inviting and a welcoming atmosphere for you as we come into the presence of the Lord. Got a really special treat this morning. Uh, we've got Bobby Linkus here this morning. He's uh, going to bring us the Word of God this morning. He's here with his wife, Carly. Is that right, Carly? Why here with his wife, Carly? Uh, Bobby is previously from Shatterbrook Church, and uh, it's a real treat and an honor to have him here this morning, and I pray you'll make him and his wife welcome, and I uh, can't wait to get into the Word with him this morning. So well, please welcome Bobby this morning. And we'll get right to it. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It really is. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. You know, any time that we gather together like this, if you don't hear those words at some point at the beginning about open your Bibles, uh, you're probably in the wrong place. Uh, but we can fellowship, we can have family, we can have a lot of different things. But one of the joys that we get as we gather together is, is, is that we get to, to feast on God's Word together. And uh, there's two things that uh, just uh, as I heard about your church that I love. One uh, is that you like expository preaching. You, you like preaching from the Word, not just kind of reading a verse and then kind of expanding for the next 30 minutes of whatever views or political things are kind of going on in the world, but that you really want God's Word. The second thing, when they told me that you like two hours worth of preaching, I loved that. I, I thought there is rare to see people nowadays that really will sit for two hours feasting on God's Word. Uh, we're probably going to keep that down to about 35 minutes this morning and, and have more of kind of one of those, uh, like when you go to Sam's Club and you just get that little snack. Well, we'll probably do that only about 35, 40 minutes this morning. But we're going to look this morning at uh, um, the whole case of surrender. Uh, you know, we just sang a couple songs about, uh, you know, laying our life down, laying it all down. And, and that's really hard. We're living in a time that we really see that uh, we really are kind of out of control. There's a lot of things that are happening that we just don't have control over, that, that we just don't have the ability to keep within our confines. Uh, we look at what happened a couple of weeks ago in Charleston, what happened even this past week in Chattanooga, and we begin to see that there's a vulnerability out there that is just uh, kind of sometimes it's very oppressive on us, very discouraging. In the midst of that, we, we see all kinds of different emotions coming out. One of the emotions that I've seen, uh, some might term the American spirit, you know, that, that kind of, okay, we're not going to give up. And, and you've seen the, the, the signs out there of Charleston Strong, kind of following the whole Boston Strong theme. And, and this last week, I saw a couple of things yesterday about Chattanooga Strong. That somewhere in the midst of all that despair, of all that tragedy, that in the midst of it, there's this fighting spirit that says, okay, you have not defeated us. And yet as Christians, sometimes when we look at Supreme Court rulings, we look at the world that we live in, we go, man, everything's changing so fast. Do we have control? Do, is this something that really we need to retreat and just kind of give up? And yet that really is not the spirit that we see uh, that kind of, if you want to say, perfected in America, that, that fighting spirit that keeps going on no matter what the odds, that, that never-give-up attitude. It's actually not just something that's American, though. Do you know that's part of our human nature? God put in each one of us. Now, again, it was corrupted with the fall. When sin entered this world, it kind of became a prideful thing. But that fighting spirit that kind of don't want to give up, don't want to surrender, I'm not going to wave the white flag. You know, initially, I think that was very much all purpose for the glory of God. 
And yet in the fall, very much it became kind of corrupted. And that's where we live today. And sometimes uh, we see that even in infancy. Uh, ever had that 18-month-old, that 2-year-old that refused to take the nap? You know, you didn't have to teach it. You know, it was nap time. It was time to put them down for a nap. And, and yet at that very moment, you, you saw a persistence. You saw a, a, a will not to surrender. I mean, they would exhaust themselves with crying and everything else, but they are not going to take that nap just because you said it was nap time. Folks, it's part of our human nature, and it's part of the fallen nature that we live in now. And, and so that's, you know, when we see things like in Charleston and we see things like in Chattanooga and we see that, that, that never-give-up spirit, we're drawn to it because it's a natural part of us, and, and yet it's not always the best part of us. It kind of plays both sides. It's, it's one of those two-edged swords. It's one of those things that can kind of cut both ways. I mean, we love heroic stories of, like the Alamo. Have you ever studied American history? And the Alamo, they're outnumbered 15 to 1, and, and yet they do not surrender. Everybody's saying, you know, man, we just need to raise the white flag. We just need to put the flag up and surrender and save our lives. And, and yet, you know, people like uh, David Crockett and, and William Travis, they said, no, we're not. And they fought to their death. Now, they didn't win, and, and yet the legacy of their courage and their refusal to surrender lived on. Remember the Alamo. And those words became an encouragement to a lot of uh, others that were fighting in the days after most of them had given their lives. See, we're drawn to that. We like those heroic stories. It can be on that grand level of something like war. It can be like um, Jimmy Valvano. Anybody in C State fans? I'm not necessarily one, but uh, I liked his spirit. You know, uh, if you go back many years, he had a, a team that was supposed to be pretty good, but they were not supposed to win the NCAA championship. And yet, defying the odds, they went out there and, and they just defied the odds and they won the championship. And if you remember, uh, if you're old enough to remember, uh, Jimmy V running up and down around, you know, he was just so excited. Years later, he contracted cancer, and, and we, we began to see that, that fighting spirit that overcoming spirit, that no-surrender spirit, it lived on. And, and back in 1993 at the ESPY Awards, he gave a speech that really will go down and be probably one of the most familiar things that ever happened in, in the ESPY. So, that phrase, never give up, never give up. We're drawn to that. There's something in our human nature, there's something in our very spirit, we're just drawn to that. And, and yet... We open up God's word and we look at Luke 9.23 and look what he says. This is the words of Christ. He's he's there with the disciples. They've just fed the 5,000 or he's just fed the 5,000. They've had kind of their big group time and now it's small group time and it's just those 12. And it's a teaching time for Jesus and and his disciples. And and they've been longing for that even before the feeding of the 5,000. They were wanting a time where they could just kind of have some guy time with just the 12 of them and kind of get together. And they finally get that. It's Jesus and the 12 disciples. And listen to what Christ says to those disciples. Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we just talked about this incredible spirit that we have that we like. Two outs, bottom of the ninth. We, we like the guy that's going to hit the grand slam. We're drawn to heroic stories that don't give up. And, and yet the words of Christ to this immediate family that he has of the disciples, he says, okay, guys, I want you to surrender all. 
If you wish to come after me, if you want to be a follower of mine, you have to deny yourself, deny yourself, submit, surrender. So how do we pull that off? How do we take that part of our spirit that very much says, okay, I'm not giving up. That spirit of that 18-month-old that said, I am not taking a nap. I don't care what you say, Mom. How do we take that kind of spirit that we know is there, we didn't have to teach that spirit to our children, and yet then follow and be faithful to the calling of Christ here? Folks, we pride ourselves on being fighters. The last thing that we can think about doing when it comes to sickness or or overwhelming odds is to raise that white flag. And yet Christ in his invitation to his disciples then and his disciples now 2,000 years later, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Raise the white flag on your own life. Deny yourself. Surrender. Surrender your life and and follow me. So, So how in the world do we do that? I mean, maybe you would say, well, Bobby, you know, sometimes you you can just understand, is that what he's really saying? Well, let's look at verse 24. Just, uh, you know, we always want to look at the word in context. And and so that's why we don't soundbite Christianity. We live in a world of soundbites where they just kind of give a little bit here, a little bit there. That's why expository preaching is is the best preaching. I mean, from time to time, I'll do a topical sermon, then I'll repent and come back and do expository uh, preaching because, you know, we get the full context. We don't just get this little snippet that can be twisted and turned. We really see the foundation of what God was teaching. And so we read on to the next verse just in case we're going, did he really mean raise the white flag on our own lives, to surrender our own lives, to deny ourselves and really follow him? Is that what he's really talking about? Verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will be the one who will save it. Folks, make no mistake that Christ is calling those 12, and he's calling followers today into submission and surrender. So here's a million-dollar question. Since we have this natural spirit, we have this part of us that says, do not quit, never give up, never give up. And yet this call of Christ in our life to, to surrender our will to his, how do we, how do, we do that? We just get caught in the crossfire? I mean, have you ever been caught in the crossfire of that? Of, of this call that God has upon your life to surrender all? And, and yet there's a part of you that very much says, I mean, I don't give up. I mean, it can be tested in the most innocent of things. This morning, I, I'm you know, finishing up. I printed out the sermon and everything. And, you know, I'm coming down. It's all about surrender and everything. And I come down, and, and my wife's right here, but she left the kitchen light on. And it was one of those things, you know, I'm old school. And, uh, you know, the problem with our kitchen is it's, it's those kind of lights up. Lights up and you, so you turn on one, and it's not one light, it's five lights. 60 watts, that's 300 watts. Now, every guy just did that in their head. Yeah, man, that's 300 watts, man, that's waste electricity. And here I'm preaching about surrender. We're going to talk about loving your wife as Christ loved the church. And yet, you know, I come down and go, she left the lights on. 300 watts, just, you know... Might as well take out my wallet and throw it out the window. And there was not a whole bunch of loving your wife as Christ loved the church. So here's the conflict. You know, there's a part of me, we don't leave the lights on. And then there's this call of Christ to love my wife as Christ loved the church. You get caught in that crossfire all the time, guys. And, And so how do we do that? How do we take these fighting spirits, this overcome the odds, this take no prisoner kind of mentality, that we uh, very much herald and, and make heroic and, and follow Christ and not just come to a place of surrender in our lives, but get this, to do it with joy. I mean, it's one thing 
Anybody ever have an older brother or an older sibling and they get you in the headlock? Say uncle. You know, they got you. And eventually, you know, you don't, the last thing you want to do is what? Say uncle. I mean, the last thing you want to do is surrender and give up your will. And yet he just keeps on and he's holding tighter and tighter and he's just rubbing your head. So finally, just out of that desperation, you surrender and you say uncle and he lets you go. Now, folks, that kind of surrender there is not really what Christ is talking about. That is under duress. And there's times in our lives that we really think, you know, okay, Christ, you know, he has to get us in the headlock and say, okay, you know, I just want you to surrender. Okay, I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to surrender. And he has to start doing kind of the noogie on the head before we go, okay, I surrender. But it's not with joy. In these verses, he's asking something so dramatic of the disciples. And as of us today, he's asking for us to surrender, but not one of just where he gets us in a headlock and we do it under duress. He's asking us to surrender and to do it with um, joy. And so if we're ever going to do that and not just get caught in this crossfire of what kind of comes natural to us and yet the call of Christ here, well, we've got to understand, okay, God, what do you, how do we do this? One of the first things we need to do is kind of look at this whole idea of surrender. Maybe even redefine it. Or at least define it as Christ defined it. See, if we leave it up to us, surrender might be, okay, I'm just going to make a little bit of improvement. And, and yet if we let Christ begin to define what does this surrender, this thing begin to look like, all of a sudden it, it makes us kind of change our definition. Because if I just came in here this morning and I asked you out in the hallway or before and I asked What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word surrender? What comes to your mind? What word comes out? Give up. Yeah, that was not rhetorical. Yeah, <laughs> give up. Give up. What else? Yeah, failure. Yeah, I lost. You know, defeated. We don't like any of those things. And, and yet when he asks us to surrender our lives here, well, we begin to say, okay, I, I don't want to lose. Well, to really understand the full call of Christ here, and I think a key to really kind of pulling off 23 and 24, to really understanding that and letting that truly be an application of our life and maybe a mindset in our life, we have to go back and see the rest of the story. We have to see the context of it. Again, not just take a sound bite, but understand what was the full setting. So go back with me to verse 18. They've just fed the 5,000. They've... uh, Uh, taken up to 12 loaves afterwards. It's been a kind of a momentous thing. They've seen the power of God in in, in the midst of all that. And uh, and then look what happens. They have this time alone, and it says in verse 18, And it happened that while he was praying, that is, while Christ was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? I mean, they just had the feeding of the 5,000. And he's, um, this is the end of his Galilean ministry. He's about to, uh, as the Bible would say in, in other Gospels, turn his face toward Jerusalem. That is, he's headed toward the cross. It's still going to be kind of a, a long journey to the cross. But the, the Galilean ministry that he had, where he really kind of showed everybody his uh, miraculous powers, his love, and all those kind of things, it, it's coming to an end. And he's about to turn his ministry toward Jerusalem, to the cross. And as he begins that, he asks this question. Who do people say that I am? Now, two things that we know about that question. Number one, it was not rhetorical. He, he did expect an answer, and he's going to get one. The, the second part of that that we really do begin to understand is that it wasn't as if he did not know. Of course he knew. But he wanted those disciples in their mind. You know how sometimes you can ask somebody a question, 
And it's not so much because you don't know the answer. You just want to make sure that they know the answer. And that's what Christ is doing. He says, you know, who do people say that I am? And they come out and they begin to uh, uh, give a definition. Look at verse 19 there. They answered and said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets of old has come again. So that they haven't ready answered. They said, you know, we hear a lot of different things. Man, when you were fighting, feeding the 5,000 back there, man, they thought you were, they, they know you're something special. That you can take just a little bit and make a lot out of it. That you can do the miraculous. So they know, Jesus, that you're spiritual. We know that you're kind of a religious leader. We know a lot of things about you. Maybe that you're John the Baptist back to life. That Maybe an Old Testament prophet like Elijah who's come for this day and for this time. So they know that he's religious. They know that he's spiritual. Maybe even righteous. But they're not really there saying, okay, the word on the street is that you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus asked that famous question in verse 20. Look down, first part of verse 20. And he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He goes away from the public to the personal. He goes away from this collective crowd that was there of the thousands, and he gets into the hearts and the minds of those 12 disciples, the, the intimacy of that small group, like kind of what we would meet here today in, in our homes. And he doesn't say, okay, public opinion says that Christ is who? No, he says, who do you say that I am? What conclusion have you drawn in your own life? Now, Peter was never one to kind of take an, uh, a question and, and not give an answer. I mean, he's always ready to give his opinion. He was one of those that you didn't have to worry about everything staying silent. Peter was one of those that oftentimes would insert his foot first and then think about it and then kind of go back, well, I didn't mean that. But, but he's the first one to speak out here. Look what he says at the end of verse 20. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Uh, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, it says, you, you are the Christ the son of the living God. You're not just some religious leader. You're not just kind of some guy who has some new information. You are the Messiah. You are the one sent from God to redeem the world. And Peter makes that proclamation. Now please understand what just happened here. Before Christ tells them, okay, I I want you to, to think a whole new way about surrender. I want you to lay down your life. Before you define surrender, define who I am. And guys, things haven't changed in 2,000 years. I promise you, you will not define surrender biblically until you define Jesus Christ in your life. I mean, until you understand who he is and, and what he's come to do and, and his call on his life, you're, you're not going to have that spirit of surrender. You're going to come down, see the light on and go 300 watts right out the door. You know, that, that immediate thought process is always going to be one of, you know, here's my preference, here's how I want things, and, man, she didn't love up to that for this moment. And we're going to go around quite disappointed in people, and even people that we love, we're going to go around kind of frustrated, and we're not going to really have this life of, of submission and surrender. I mean, it is unnatural. We were born with this... this uh, uh, desire to be in control. I mean, we see it in Adam and Eve. I mean, God says you can eat from anything in the garden that you want to. And I don't know, it never says how many trees are there, but I'm guessing, would you guess that there's at least a thousand trees? I mean, I, I think that there's thousands of trees. 
And, and God puts one restriction, only one restriction on Adam and Eve. And he says, okay, you can eat from any tree that you want. And I believe that they were really sufficient. I mean, I, I think it was good trees, peach trees, apple trees, all kinds of different things that were good. And yet there was this one tree, he says, okay, but don't eat from that. And yet we see this part of that mindset going, okay, now, now what's God holding back on? I, I, I had peach tree, yeah, and apple tree, and man, those things are good, but man, this one, it, it just looks kind of special. And all of a sudden, that, that little part of the net says, okay, look, I really don't want, even though he's God and he's my creator and he's really over all things, he's more powerful than I could ever think about being, I really don't want him telling me what to do. And, and, and so what do they do? They follow their own heart, their own will, their own desire. They eat of the fruit of that tree and the fall comes. And the separation between holy God and now sinful man begins to exist. Look, look what happens here. What does Christ do? He, he begins to find who he is and what he's all about. Look, look at verse 22. Let's go back down to verse 22. They've just, you know, he's told them to, to think about who he is and he's asked them, who do you say that I am? And now he explains his actual mission. Verse 22. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, folks, when you look at that verse and you look at what Christ is saying is going to happen, does that look like victory to you? I mean, here he's calling them to a life of surrender. Okay, follow me. And yet look at this following. Look what it incorporates. You must suffer. Well, I don't know that many of us are quick to get in line for the suffering line. Blessing line, suffering line. Okay, oh, hard choice. Give me blessings. You must suffer. You must be rejected. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, man, when I was 13 or 14 and, man, that peer pressure, I didn't like to be the odd person out. But how many of you are still experiencing that in your 40s and your 50s? And you still have that peer pressure. You don't want to be the odd person out. You don't like rejection. And yet here he's inviting us to suffer, to be rejected, and to be killed. That was probably the thing that, you know, probably, uh, man, killed? Didn't you say before that this was where real life was and now you're talking about being killed? Folks, that that sounds a lot more like surrender than victory. And yet with each word, Christ was redefining surrender and submission for all those that would follow him. With each word, Christ is demonstrating there a, a new way of thinking about surrender. He's inviting us into this life. You see, it wasn't the mission of Christ to see how long he could stay on earth. When he came, he didn't say, okay, you know, I hope to live about 80, 90 years, kind of do a lot of good things, teach a lot of, you know, preach some sermons, do some miracles, feed the 5,000 and sometimes even more than the 5,000. I hope to do a lot of those things. And, and my whole goal of being here is to see how long I can stay and how popular I can become. Now, from the very beginning, what did Christ say? It's number one, I've come to seek and to save those that are lost. And here he tells us that his whole purpose is to die for the sins of many. He wasn't on that whole Frank Sinatra, you know, thing. My, my purpose in life is to do it my way. That's not what Christ is saying here. It's those words in the garden that we see later on right before his death. Father, not my will, but your will be done. That was his purpose and that was his mission. And his actions were defined by his mission. 
And his mission was defined by the purposes of the Father. Do you make that connection? That the actions of life, he said, okay, I'm going to live my life according to the purpose of my life. And what is the purpose of my life? What my Father desires. Now, folks, if you've been in church, you're kind of familiar with some theology. You know about the Trinity. You know the, the three in one, God the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. We know that Christ is equal with the Father. And yet what we see is a submission, a surrender in this role. Theologically, is Christ as powerful as the Father? Yes. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes we think, well, you know, God, the Father, I mean, that's like Big Daddy there. And so, you know, the Son, he's a close second, and the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of nips there at, at third. No, they're, they're equal. They, they are all God. And yet what we see here in the life of Christ, his purpose and his mission is to be in submission, surrendered to the Father. Not because he has to. Not because God has him in some kind of a headlock and says, okay, say uncle or go to the cross. And I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go to the cross. I mean, we see some of that, that human nature. God is, full, you know, Christ is fully human, fully man, and yet he's fully God. And we see some of that in the garden. But if there's a way that this cup can pass by me, if, if there's another way, and, and yet not my will, your will be done. Now, do you have to be like Christ? Do you have to be Christ in order to do that? Because, folks, it's not natural. It's the farthest thing from our own nature. In fact, it would be supernatural. And that's what Christ is trying to get to. And that's what we see ones like James and and Paul and Peter write about later on. They all talk about life in Christ. Not life, okay, I've learned some more moral code. I grew up in a church. It was a well-meaning church, a church that loved Christ. And, you know, they, they loved Jesus. They really did. But when I grew up in church, it was pretty much about the do's and the don'ts. I mean, I call it First Baptist Church of the do's and the don'ts. And, and success in that church of, of your walk with Christ was that you did all the do's and you stayed away from the don'ts. And, and the measure that you could accomplish that was, that was the measure of your Christianity. Oh, my goodness. I had several great minutes during my teenage years. I mean, for a minute or two, man, I could ace that test. And yet, but the weeks, the months, and the years, that I just didn't get it. And it was all down to the do's and the don'ts. And, and what we see here is, you know, that was the natural mind. And some people think that the submission, the surrender to God means, okay, I used to do this. The Bible says don't do it, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Certainly, there is responsibility in following Christ. Please do not hear that. But that is not the key to life in Christ. This isn't natural, it's supernatural. Because something supernatural has to happen. And and that is that before we can truly define this surrender, we have to define Christ. My question for this morning, have you defined Christ in your life? Have you truly defined who Christ is? Who do you say that I am? I, I believe that there's not a more pertinent question that could be ever asked of you or me or anybody else in humanity, that there's really not another question that is going to be as deep-seated and is kind of kind of play out throughout eternity than that one. Who is Christ to you? Not what your neighbor says, not what the pastor says, not what some other person says, but who is Christ in your life? See, husbands, you will never be able to love your wife as Christ loved the church until you know Christ. 
You can know step one, step two, step three, bring flowers, do this, say pretty things. I mean, you can get a list of do's and don'ts, but you cannot love your wife as Christ loved the church until you know Christ. Until you define Christ, you cannot define that kind of love for your wife. Ladies, it's the same way. I was just to submit, follow, encourage their, your husband in Ephesians 5. And, and you will never really know the fullness of that until you know Christ. Because the picture isn't there the, of some kind of underling. Okay, he's the head, even though he has made that clear that the, the husband is head. It's not some underling position. No, it's Christ in the church. And for us, you know, ladies, for, for you to love your husband, and submit to that leadership and that fellowship, you're never going to be able to define that outside of a, a cultural context, outside of a, a human context, until you know biblically who Christ is. And then all of a sudden you, you go, okay, I get it. Still struggle with it at times, but I get it. Do you see how that works? I mean, we go to Ephesians 5, and we see these commands for, for husbands and wives for this life together in marriage, and, and yet it's all predicated, it's all kind of on one definition preceding how we would live that out. Who is Christ? Husbands, love your wives very well. Is that what it says? Love your wives with roses and dates. I mean, a lot of ladies are going, that's, that's a good starting place, you know, as long as it does. No, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But you have to define that. And so in other words, the Bible says, you know, we have to have this mindset of who Christ is, but also the mind of Christ. But here's the good news. You know that the Bible actually says, the Apostle Paul comes back in Philippians, and he actually says that we can have the mind of Christ. It's an amazing thing. Not that we are Christ, but that we can have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The New American Standard says it this way, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. I, I love how the English Standard Version, the ESV, says it. I think it's actually probably a, a more proper rendering of the original Greek. Uh, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this isn't just something that you kind of sign up, okay, I want to start thinking like Christ. No, until Christ is in you, you, you can't think this way. One predicates the other. One is before the other. One has to be foundational. The other one builds upon that. And so you and I cannot have this mindset of thinking like Christ until we actually are in Christ. Well, the great news about that is that's not something that we earn. It's not kind of a, a moral place that we get into a life. It is as simple as just saying, God, I am a sinner. I am separated from you and your blessing and, and life with you through my sin. And yet you in your love for me have sent your son, your very own son, to die in my place. And as the Bible says in Corinthians, that you, you took my sin and you laid it upon him. You took his righteousness and, and you put it on me. Folks, you, you cannot get a better deal than that anywhere. That's the good news of the gospel. This great exchange that theologians talk about, that what we deserved, Christ took. What he earned, what he deserved, we get to live in. So the question comes down. If you had to kind of sum up the level of surrender in your life uh, this morning, and I realize it could be all over the place. It can be, you know, uh, all kinds of different things. You could be thinking about your marriage. If you're married, you can 
think about uh, finances and, and different things. Uh, pretty complex. But, but what level of surrender are you? Are you kind of at that 18-month, uh, two-year-old, I will not take a nap. You can put me down. You can make it soft and cuddly. You can tell me that this is where I belong, but I refuse to go to sleep. You may strap me to that bed, but I will not close my eyes and I will not surrender. There's times in our lives that we actually live the Christian life like that. That God has asked us to do something. He's asked us to kind of follow out him and just simply to follow him and, and to have this, to lay down our lives and, and follow him, take up the cross. And we said, it's not going to happen. Not over my dead body. And Christ says, exactly. Exactly that's how it's going to happen. You're going to die to self so that you can really start living the life that I always intended for you to have. You, you can do it that way. Or, or there's another approach to this whole thing of surrender. And this is one that a lot of us will fall into, especially if you had the uh, spiritual raising that I did, uh, kind of the, the do's and the don'ts. And that is, you know, you hear a sermon about following Christ, you hear a sermon about loving your wife well or submitting to your husband or, or whatever it might be. You, you hear this call of Christ, the call of the Scripture, and you say, okay, man, I just need to dig down deeper. Man, i got to muscle up here. And we look into our own strength and our own ability to be able to do that. Folks, it's not biblical. And that is not the invitation of Christ. That is not what Christ has invited every follower into. Hey, how tough can you be? Jeff, I look out there and I see you and I see a guy that probably doesn't give up very easily. I bet as nice and as much as you can put on the wig and play with the kids and all that, I bet when push comes to shove, you're in there with the toughest of them. And and while that can be an admirable trait in some arenas, Man, Boston strong, Charleston strong, Chattanooga strong. Man, when it comes to the call of Christ, he doesn't want to say, okay, Jeff strong, Bobby strong. He's not looking for your strength. He's saying, okay, will you you just hide in my strength? If you don't hear anything else this morning, I pray that you hear this. Folks, if you could live the Christ life apart from the work of Christ, then his death was without purpose and it was the greatest of all human tragedies. If you and I could just muscle up, if we could just self-determine, if we could just say, okay, I'm going to learn this moral code, I'm going to learn to be a better person, I'm going to learn to do all these things, I'm going to love my wife well, I'm going to love my husband well, I'm going to do these things well. If we could do that on our own strength and it did not take the finished work of Christ, then, then what a waste, what a tragedy the cross was. But here's the good news of the gospel. When we trust in that work of Christ, we don't just begin to think differently. We, we get a whole new mind. You know, the Bible said that this is what happens to, to every believer. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, you're a believer in Christ, you've put your trust and faith for your salvation, your rightness with God in him, here's what the Bible said has happened. God took out a heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh took out the old mind and he's put in the capability of a new mind. This is all through Christ. And that's when we begin to think differently. It's when we begin to act and react differently. See, the, the bottom line here this morning is um, you might really be facing a Luke 9.23 this morning. I mean, I, except for a couple that I've met, I, 
I really don't know. You, you don't know me. But even those that are familiar with this church and, and you see each other on a regular basis, you, you don't really know perhaps what's going on in everybody's life. And, and you may be in a place this morning where Luke 9.23, this call to surrender, you're going, okay, God, I, man, I want to, but I just, you know, I don't I, what would I do if I surrendered? What if I truly followed you and what your call is upon my life? What, what would really happen? It's kind of where my wife and I are uh, in ministry right now as far as uh, following God's call on, on our life. 23 years in a wonderful church, a, a wonderful church. And God called us out to something more missional. Didn't know what that was. I looked for signs, believe me, I looked for signs. <laughs> I, I looked for all kinds of different things. Okay, God, just tell me what it is and we'll go there. It's kind of, you know, Abraham, where he, God tells Abraham, okay, you just go and I'll tell you when you get there. Now, I... I can you just give me a map, you know, so that we can kind of know? But maybe this morning you're there in your marriage. Maybe, maybe you truly are just a heartbeat away from walking away from it all. Man, I've put up with this guy for 10 years. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Man, put up with her shenanigans for all these years, and it's just, you know, it's, it's degrading. It's not improving. Maybe it's a health situation. I mean, it could be a myriad of things where we're, of various people, and we come in here, we have all kinds of various situations. But yet there's this one call into our life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This morning, if God has called you something that is difficult and hard, and really as far as your human eye can see, it leads to nothing but defeat, I pray this morning that you would go back and scripturally, biblically, Define who Christ is in your life. Answer that question that he asked to the disciples. Who who do you say that I am? And as you define that, if he truly is sovereign God, if he truly is the Messiah of the world, if he truly is the one who's come to make full payment and redemption for us who are lost, then kind of take that into the factor there when you're going, okay, can I just surrender? Three questions that, that always help me. When I'm in that battle of my will and, and God wants me to surrender, is God sovereign? And to that, what would you say? Yes. Is God good? Does God love you? Okay, I mean, if we really believe that, if we really, I mean, that may sound kind of simplistic, but if, that, if that's really what you believe about God, that he really knows all things, that he truly is a God who knows all things, he is sovereign and in control of authority over all things, that he is good. He truly is good. He's, he's working everything for his glory and for your good, and that he loves you. Man, then, then surrender can come in there. I, I love doing weddings. Weddings are one of my favorite things to do. And, um, but you know what I, I like, I, I think, even a little bit more? 25-year and, and 50-year when they do a recommitment. Because when they say those vows again after 25 years or 50 years or whatever the case might be. You know, it's not that kind of youthful, okay, for better, for worse. And in the back of their mind, they're thinking it's all going to be better. For rich or for poor. And they're thinking, man, we're going to be filthy rich. And uh, sickness and health. Man, we are young studs. We're 23, no problems in the world. But after 25 years, after 50 years, and they stand there and they make that commitment of their vows, they know for better, for worse. 
They've seen it for 25 years. They know richer and poorer. They, they, they know all that. And then all of a sudden you're going, man, this commitment that they make, this covenant that they make with one another, it will test the most trying of situations. Folks, that's the invitation that Christ gives you this morning to surrender. Take up your cross daily. Take up, follow him. But what if he leads in a place where I, I don't really want to go? Follow him. He's sovereign. He's good. He loves you. And even if you're facing the most difficult thing, I, I pray that this morning, this morning, that you won't resort to just kind of finding the tougher you. Pulling up, you know, some, some kind of measure of that American experience and, and spirit by your bootstraps, but that you would say, no, here, here's who Christ is. He's the Messiah. He's the Redeemer of all that have put their trace, trust and faith in him. And I can surrender to that. Who do you say that I am? Jesus calls us there. He says simply, you define me before you define the surrender. Let's pray together today. Father, we, we are so quick to define surrender. And Father, so often we see it as loss. We see it as defeat. We, we see it as giving up. And yet, Father, today we, we read your word. And Father, this invitation that he that Christ gave to his disciples, Father, is the same one that he extends to us today. That in order to follow him, Father, it truly does, it means that, that we really do take up the cross. That, Father, we come to a place when we don't trust our own understanding, but, Father, we put ourselves totally in your hands. And, Father, I, I don't know what each one is facing this morning, but I can only imagine that, that Father, they're facing those dilemmas in their life. They're caught in that crossfire between really wanting to trust you implicitly with their life and surrendering all that they are to you and your holiness and trying to figure out what's the end game. If I go down this path, if I really trust God, where will it end? So Father, I pray this morning that before we define surrender, Father, help us just define your son. You're most gracious, you're most loving that you would extend to us that which was precious to you, your one and only Son, that he might die in our place for our sins so that we might have not just eternal life, but we might have life in him. And Father, I just pray that we would understand that this morning. Bring us to a place of surrender. As we pray all this in the mighty name of the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.